Welcome, everyone, to episode 41 of Rules of the Arena podcast. We are finally back at the Blind Ninja Studios. And in studio with me this evening is producer Casey. And unfortunately, Ben hasn't gotten his his hall pass back from the nursing home, so he can't be here. (laughs) My my guest tonight should be taking the helm for the Dosaki's most interesting man in the world. His career spanning 26 years working with California's Department of Fish and Wildlife as a game warden. Author of two books, featured on three seasons of Wild Justice, co-founder of the Marijuana Enforcement Team, and CDFW's first sniper team. He's been on Fox News, CNN, Dan Rather Reports, NBC Investigative Reports, and multiple podcast shows, Lieutenant John Norris, Jr. Thank you, John, for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, Please introduce yourself to the folks listening. Great to be here, Gordon. Thanks for having me on. And I'm John Norris, recently retired lieutenant, like you said in that, uh, that great intro. And looking forward to talking with you tonight. So, John, I first heard your story on Joe's podcast, and... It didn't seem real uh, at first. It felt like it should be like a Hollywood movie blockbuster storyboard rather than you know actual <laughs> events. So, and since then I've listened to you on other shows like Cleared Hot, Mike Drop, Meat Eater podcast, and every time I hear it, it still just seems crazy. And I just finished reading Hidden War, and I also checked out the the audiobook version just to give it a little bit of different nice. different feeling to it. You know, having you narrate that. Uh, with your and that's your most recent book, and you also have War in the Woods ready to go, and I have that ready. Uh, that's just next on the list. But before we get nice. into all that, I just wanted to start from the beginning, uh, how you became a game warden and how that led into into the Met program. And so, you grew up in in California, Santa Clara, Clara County, correct? Yeah, I grew up in the Silicon Valley, Gordon. And when I, you know, kind of like you've heard in in, in other stories, a little derivative of. When I grew up learning to just enjoy wildlife, you know, the great outdoors, hiking, hunting, fishing, um, that whole thing, come from a long line of conservationists, um, avid outdoorsmen and women in the family, my parents, my grandparents. Uh, And then when I decided I wanted to be a game warden, when I finally met one in college, the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing is running a special operations unit, jumping out of helicopters, working with some of the best canines on the planet, some of the best men you could ask for to be brothers and, and fellow operators and actually, you know, putting our efforts focused on the drug cartels from south of the border, decimating our wildlife and doing it more from a special operations kind of domestic uh, special operations approach than traditional game warden work. It never saw it coming. Um, definitely a big, um, you know, jump for us kind of historically and I think progressively as an agency to even go that direction. But I'm really glad we did. I'm glad we have. I'm glad it's going strong. And and certainly uh, some surreal experiences around that whole that whole evolution, if you will. Uh, you said you met a game warden back in college. Uh, how did that come across? It was a strange deal because unlike all the colleagues that I went to you know, that I was that I was in the academy with who had either wanted to be a game warden since they were kids because they had met one really young in the woods, hunting or fishing with their family, and they meet the game warden and go, wow, that's an awesome job. That's what I want to do. I want to, you know, get paid to have a lot of fun and be around a lot of good conservationists and outdoorsmen and outdoor women. And I didn't have that experience, unfortunately, of all those years of hunting and being in the outdoors with my dad since I was nine years old. Uh, I didn't actually meet a game warden until I was in college as a civil engineering major um, in the Silicon Valley at San Jose State University. And on a winter break with a pack horse and one of my best friends, my brother outlaw, I like to call him Jeff Moore. And we were, you know, just 
in the park at an odd time of the year when no one else was in 105,000 amazing acres. And there we were horse packing through Kenrico Park and a game warden contacting us uh, after a long night of being torrentially drenched in a rainstorm and just, you know, ill-equipped, dumb kids, you know, kind of trying to figure it out, survival style. And uh, he thought we were poaching animals. It turned out we were just dumb kids hiking without the right equipment. <laughs> and trying to play survivalist. And um, I kept him there for about two hours when I realized he wasn't a, a traditional park ranger for that area and was actually a wildlife officer by himself without backup, 14 miles into the backcountry in a four-wheel drive truck. And I was just blown away by that. I mean, my wheels couldn't stop spinning mentally that whole trip. And I changed my major immediately when I got out of the woods on that winter break to criminal justice, knowing that I would target this profession because it was, it was the right calling for me. And really random that we ran into each other. I kind of call it divine intervention because we were so remote and the odds of running into a game warden that time of year in December, that far into the backcountry. Now that I am a game warden, knowing how much terrain I got to cover and all the places I never get to, you know, for months at a time, it was like a needle in a stack of needles. It was crazy. So I'm very thankful for that encounter um, and what it led to. I mean, were you just enamored with, with the position right out the gate talking to him or was it just that slow burn of that conversation it was it was kind of you know a little kid at christmas excitement when i knew and i said so you don't you don't really check into a squad room you don't go to a police building you have your car at home you work out of your home you're immersed with your populace and your public to be in the community to be in the outdoors and that basically on a steel horse you ride that is your patrol vehicle that four by four is your lifeblood you're by yourself and largely you're just, in, you know, finding problems by being proactive, not just responding to calls for service, you know, like unfortunately a lot of um, law enforcement officers have to do because there's just so many demands in our city urban centers. And when I realized that's what he did and he was paid to do that and that was his job and it was all self-motivating, I was elated. There, was, uh, there wasn't any slow burn about it. I could not wait to get back and make some huge life changes before I started school that spring semester. So you switch over to criminal justice, and were you required to take any additional either law enforcement or either wildlife management classes on top of that? Yeah, that's a really good question. There is some wildlife management involved. Um, I minored in that. I also had some business sciences and things like that. I ended up going into the master's program immediately after I finished my bachelor's in, in CJ in criminal justice um, because I was still kind of in a, a holding pattern to get hired. There was a really hard hiring freeze at that time. This was 1992. And uh, it was just really hard to get hired if you didn't have military preference points or you weren't a lateral from another law enforcement agency. So I was told I'd be on the list for like three extra years. So I said, okay, um, then I'm going to get my graduate degree because it's going to come in handy down the road. I'm going to front load my future. And at the same time, I was working as juvenile probation counselor with uh, California Youth Authority, Destin Kids, um, having a really good experience, you know, raw real world not academic confrontational mentoring challenging physically potentially dangerous getting into all those situations as i was waiting to get this job so and uh when i got the call it was no hesitation i jumped on it what were you doing to put yourself ahead of that pack you said that you didn't have the military experience preferential point so what kind of prep work did you do or was it more resume or did you have to take a test I had to take a test and I, you know, I studied really hard for it and I was really lucky to be, I scored as high as I could as a non-military veteran that wasn't a law enforcement lateral from another agency. 
so I basically made the third rank, which was 95%, which was I maxed out what I could attain given my background. But that the top three ranks were who they chose to get into this academy, and they only had about 26 slots for thousands of applicants. So the attrition rate, the selection rate was very hard to get into. So it was quite an honor, and I, was, I felt very lucky that I got in with you know veteran park rangers and law enforcement officers that had, had half their career already in law enforcement and then military veterans. And I was 23 or 22 years old. So I was very wet behind the ears. I was very young, you know, didn't have a whole lot of life experience, but I was eager to learn. And I was, I was thrown in the deep end real quick, being a squad leader for uh, some of the guys in the Academy. And then, um, you know, learning kind of trial by fire, but it was the most rewarding experience. And I think educational and life building experience that I've ever had was that Academy resource Academy for 1992. And then once you make it in, do you have to go through a probationary period with awardance? You do. You go through a field training officer program where you're with three different training officers for a month at a time in three different parts of the state doing a diversity of wildlife law enforcement challenges. Where they Marine patrol, deer season patrol, way up in high elevation down in the desert, um, a lot of commercial fishing, uh, everything from black market poaching. I kind of did it all and had three really good FTOs. And then after that, you're a solo warden in a new district. I was sent to Southern California for that and started down there. And you're just solo. You know, you see your lieutenant once every couple of weeks and you're out there generating your own cases and you're meeting other agencies, you're meeting the public. So you are really making the uh, you're, you're making the quality game more and the quality relationships you're going to have in the profession on your own. So you can make it or break it all by yourself. You can't blame anybody else for not giving you the support because it's so self-motivating. And that's what made it so fun. And that lasts for a year. And if you pass that, you're doing fine and you're safe and you're not getting complaints. You're treating the public well. But, you know, you're really tactically sound and with officer safety when you do get into those those high risk, dangerous, dangerous individuals we all run across as game wardens in the thin green line. You're good to go. And you're off probation and you're part of a squad and you have a district and you have teammates that you see periodically and uh a lot of country to cover, and it's just amazing, amazing profession. Any uh, rites of passage, if you will, from the FTOs making a collect exhaust exhaust samples and taking those to the commanding officer? Uh, yeah, you know, some of the things <laughs> that I always got into was kind of making those mistakes that every rookies make that you just can't avoid because you just don't have the search image built within your your programming, within your mind, to see everything you need to see for situational awareness. So when it comes to seeing one violation, it might be a simple one like, okay, he's got one fish that's too short. It's you know not, it's not long enough, what we call a short fish. I'm going to write that ticket. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to write my first case. And you think it's a case of the century when it may not be. But it feels like it, you know, obviously when you're new. And you're hyper-focusing on so many things and you're missing like guys on the shoreline next to this guy associates and they're throwing over limits of fish and there's maybe knives on the ground and you know you maybe you're missing a weapon here and there because you just haven't been in that situation i look back on that now and i go oh my gosh you know if i hadn't had that fto there i put myself in a lot of danger and we all do that it's just learning it's just getting your mind of you know conditioned to seeing so much processing so much and then dealing with it safely and basically multitasking and prioritizing what you need to do to stay safe and alive before you get into trying to write a ticket or make a case. Um, so I had a lot of those, you know, oh crap moments and there were some laughs over it, but, but I, I did well through it. I'm, I'm kind of my own worst enemy. You know, I'm, I'm pretty task oriented. I'm pretty organized. Some would say OCD. I just say prepared, but you know, you can re read it either way uh, for snipers. That's a good quality to have. If you are OCD, then your stuff's always dialed in and you're ready. But 
um, it can it can get a little you know a little annoying to some people. <laughs> but the but the thing about that was I um, I felt like I did. 80% of my potential during the FTO program. And no one's ever really dove into that question. And I'm glad you have before in any public forum, but I was an FTO after I'd been on the force for a while. And I trained eight cadets as an FTO before I promoted a Lieutenant and then started supervising and getting into special operations and everything that, you know, the Met became, but I would always tell my trainees guys, try to have fun with it. I said, you're going to be so stressed because you have this legendary game warden, I mean, usually the best FTOs are these guys that didn't promote because they stayed in the field because they were just, they were the cowboys. I mean, they made cases nobody else could make. And they did it pretty fearlessly. A lot of times they did it alone. And I wanted to be that guy. You know, those were my mentors, the Mike Carrions, the Greg Orrs, the John Ortmans, uh, some of the training officers that mentored me up through the academy, the guys that, you know, took me under their wing when I was under, under their wing as an FTO trainee. And I remember that I was so stressed about not seeing everything I needed to see or disappointing them that I, I ran about 80% my, I think my, my capability and I missed things. And granted, I successfully completed the program fairly, really successfully actually, but I could have done a lot better if I just lightened up on myself and said, dude, you are in it. It's happening now. This is your dream. Be in the moment, savor it. You're human. You're going to make a mistake, fail forward, rely on this expert, rely on this brother that you have, or this sister that's your training officer and, and learn from them. And that's a, that's a message I passed on to my trainees. And I had a lot of fun with my trainees. We had a blast. We got into a lot of stuff. It's a lot of dangerous stuff, but I had as many laughs kind of family type building bonds as family as we did at work. And I think it was a lot more fun for me as a, tra a training officer than being a trainee. And I hope I made it fun for them too. And I think I did. And I understand there's not a lot of game wardens or DNR, DNR officers for that matter nationwide. I mean, how large of an area were you in charge of and how did you decide where you needed to go each day, week or month or, or was that planned out for you? Yeah, nothing was planned out. It was really up to me. Um, I had what would be considered a smaller district in California because I was in the Silicon Valley Bay Area, which in the city hub of South Santa Clara County, Silicon Valley, the tech capital, very congested, obviously, because it's one of the biggest cities, you know, on the West Coast. But you just go 10 miles east, west, south or north of the Silicon Valley and you're in some remote public and private lands full of wildlife, full of poaching. I mean, just gorgeous, gorgeous uh, environments. So I covered about 200 square miles, give or take. And that's about a third or a fourth of what most wardens in the state and more rural parts of the state of California have to cover. And two to 300 square miles in the Silicon Valley in Santa Clara County Bay Area doesn't sound like a whole lot, but it is it's colossal because you very seldomly get to get into the backcountry as much as you want to because you're always dealing with public safety mountain lions. You're dealing with water pollution. You're dealing with stream bed alteration cases all over the urban centers, which are very impactful and decimating to our wildlife resources. Um, but a lot of us, you know, prefer not to be in the city if we can avoid it. We want to be in the woods. We want to be catching deer poachers. We want to go after the environmental criminals that are way off the grid, hard to see, hard to spot. And in city areas, um, undermanned and undergunned, as we still are as game wardens today, it's really hard to get to those places. So we kind of multitask. We prioritize where we got to go. We handle our calls for services, emergencies first. Then we go into the luxury of patrolling areas that we want to go patrol and we get, honestly, about, I'd say, an eighth to maybe, you know, an eighth to two-thirds of our area patrolled as much as we'd like to on a good day. 
What so for you? You said you're multitasking. You're prioritizing. What, what's a typical day in the you know office or in your case truck look like? And was it the job you expected going in? Uh, it, it was a lot different than I expected because I train in very remote areas of California. So the day was get prepared, decide where you're going to be at the early morning hours on a hunting season opener. Or, you know, if there's a trout opener, you're going to work anglers. Are you going to be out on a boat and prepping the boat to go out on the boat? There's all this logistic equipment and, and gear you need to prep to do it safely. Um, and then I got to the Silicon Valley. Well, first Riverside County where I started, which was real similar to, to the San Jose Bay Area. A little more crazy. There was a, a lot more hard crime at the time down there uh, compared to what I experienced back in the Silicon Valley. But um, it was nonstop. When I got back to the Silicon Valley, it was... Anything and everything could happen. I could wake up wanting to go patrol into Henry Coe Park on the deer opener on the weekend. And next thing I know, I got a mountain lion in an RV park for the elderly underneath, you know, a sales yard, um, conics box. And this is an injured animal that's pinned down that has, no, you know, no other option but to maybe fight its way out. And I got to go coordinate with local PD SWAT teams. And what are we going to do? Are we going to dispatch this cat? Or are we going to tranquilize the cat? How are we going to deal with a sensitive animal in California, a protected mammal? And that could be an all-day affair. That could be a multi-day affair. Um, teaching hunter education, outreach, going to a kid's school and doing a demo with my canine, with my companion canine, Apollo or Jordan, when she was still alive. It, honestly, Gordon, it could be a plethora of all of that. And then for three days, I might be in the woods patrolling morning, noon, and night, out of cell coverage, on an ATV, on a boat, off the shore of uh, the, the California coast, the, the Monterey or Santa Cruz coastline. It's just, there was no predictability to it, which made it great. You know, as long as I was out there stopping resource crime and being a friend and an ally and an asset to legal ethical conservationists out there, what I call fellow thin green liners, I was, I was having a dream job. I don't care where I was. And did, you know, doing that public outreach and did you ever grow relationships with, with, uh, people within your district would they ever give you tips or leads on potential crime or poaching going on or even from conservation groups very much so and another really good question that hasn't been dove into in the past is a game warden's effectiveness is completely contingent on the relationships he or she builds in their community and you got to be part of the community and you got to make friends on the poaching side you got to make friends on the education side so we need to know the guys and the gals that are out there in the woods all the time that are connected to waterways, whether it be through public agencies or private, you know, private organizations, uh, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, things like that. So the first couple of years I did it in Riverside first and I did it up here um, uh, in the, in the home area of Silicon Valley. And I took this playbook and kind of stole several pages from those mentor FTOs and training officers I had throughout the Academy and the FTO program and just watched how they worked. And when I first got to my district, even before I had business cards printed, I had a little notepad and paper with my name, handwritten, and a phone number. And I just went to all the ranchers. I went to all the meat processing stores. I went to all the commercial fisheries on the coast, um, you know, exotic species um, being sold, say, in the city areas. Just met a lot of good people. And when people realize that you're really passionate about protecting wildlife, you're not going to just nickel and dime every small ticket. You're going for real resource wildlife poachers and animal you know, wildlife violators. It's amazing how many people want to talk and share, especially guys or gals that have had poaching history. But now they've been reformed because they've made a change for the better. 
they've gotten burned before. Maybe they've done some time in court, lost some things, paid some fines, things like that. Or they've just met a game warden that they could relate to. They didn't come down on them that hard, handled the problem, did it with respect, didn't do it with any belittlement or any judgment or any over-authoritativeness. And they realized, hey, you know what? I've been doing the wrong thing. I'm hurting the wildlife. I'm out here poaching that I, I love to be out doing. I just need to do it right. And I, what I call poacher to preacher, if you will. And I had probably 10 of those individuals all over the state through my career that were so special. They became lifelong friends. They, were, they would ride along. We'd get into all kinds of cases together. And they would call me all the time. And um, my best cases, honestly, to this day, when I go back and look at you know that 28-year career, I go, wow, if it wasn't for this guy or this gal or this guy, man, I would have never made that case or had any idea it was going on. And so I'm grateful to them for trusting, you know, a cop, a wildlife cop that they had been busted by before in another in another reality. And um, you don't always get that relationship. Those were the special ones that stand out for sure. Now, if I remember right, that's how you got a lead on a gentleman that was going into a residential neighborhood and poaching yeah. whitetail or is it was it whitetail? It was it was it was blacktail deer and under multi-million dollar homes in, in the Silicon Valley foothills with a. A black, you know, basically a, a chopped lever action uh, rifle made with subsonic ammunition. So it put off hardly any sound. And he would shoot these things literally at, you know, witching hour when everyone's coming home from school. People are getting home from work. And he's in, you know, mom's soccer mom's van cruising through the neighborhood. And just out the window comes the little poach machine and pops a deer and gets it in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep. I mean, literally within... 40 or 50 yards or less of a superior court judge's home in, in the, in the Saratoga foothills. It was a crazy case. And I, I caught him fairly quickly on like only the second night of waiting for him and things like that only happen because, you know, you get uh, certain tips, you work with certain people and you make those friends and, and what we call stewards of wildlife. And like, I like to say outside of the law enforcement side of the thin green line, the public conservation side, the fellow thin green liners that we need out there helping that thin green line. And what would you say was the biggest profile arrest that in case that you had to work through uh, for poaching and how did you go about planning on catching them or going through the operation? Yeah. One of the biggest ones, um, myself and my partner warden in Santa Clara County, right out of the Academy, um, that was sadly was our, our officer that was shot during the gun, our first gunfight in 2005 when we started to get into the Met world with the sheriff's department before the big shift, um, he and I were working an undercover illegal pig hunting case by an illegal guide. And he was booking illegal hunts. He was taking you onto property that he wasn't licensed to, to access. Didn't have a guide's license, things like that. Started off as a fairly sedate undercover cr crime. We went and hunted with him, got pigs and it led to, Hey, do you guys like to hunt black bear? Well, plain ignorant, you know, we, you know, we love to hunt black bear. Where do you do that? Well, it's up in that big park over in the Sierras, but we'll have to connect with my friends. And that led to actually poaching black bears in Yosemite National Park, which was just surreal for us. It blew way up as far as the case level and the magnitude. We found out these guys were not only going into national, one of our most pristine national parks in the country and poaching black bears, but they were killing multiple mountain lions to the tune of maybe as many as a hundred over the years completely illegally when there's no hunting for mountain lions in California, they're protected mammal. Um, the stuff we picked up in a year to a year and a half of undercover operations with working that crew was one of those cases that took tons of work, tons of time. 
and really my partner Mojo doing so much of it and uh, really making it happen and doing all the hard lifting, the long investigations, the long write-ups, the sur transcribing surveillance video, transcribing surveillance audio tape, all those things. Um, at that time, I was his lieutenant and I was certainly assisting and working the case hard, but he was doing the heavy lifting. It was his baby. And I was there to assist him and do it together. And we brought in other wardens from different parts of the state and ended up serving about 25 search warrants when we were all said and done with that case and taking a whole lot of really deliberate poachers to jail and shutting them down and protecting a lot of wildlife because of it. And that was just one that stands out out of many, but that's definitely a highlight and the great job he did putting that case together. Now, me just being a, an ignorant tourist from Wisconsin, are there red flags that you, a customer, a potential customer can look for to see if the guy's a legitimate, you know, hunting guide or in your, in this case, a poacher? Yeah, there, it, a lot of it comes across just in conversations. First thing you do is if, if a guy is advertising as, if the guy is advertising as a licensed guide, we can check his guide record right away. And that's going to be in a database and we're going to know he's legit and he's going to advertise high profile. He's not going to hide. Um, it's the shady ones that, you know, you, you hear them through word of mouth. You might see a weird ad, you know, on a billboard or like a, uh, you know, kind of a, a bulletin board in a weird shop somewhere in a country town. I mean, it, it just sounds so cliche, like a weird movie <laughs> scene, but that's literally how it is. You know, this one was actually in a cartel marijuana garden run by the cartels before we even knew about that problem or worked involving it. And his business card was in the grow site. So the actual cartel growers had a card from him. He, this, this illegal guide was also working an illegal black market cartel grow at the same time. And his business card was found during one of these raids. We helped the sheriff's office in a particular County on and went, Whoa, so this guy's got to be involved or he's got to be getting kickbacks to let it happen near and around the property he knows. But then at the same time, he's advertising illegal pig hunts. What else is this guy into? And sure enough, we got the mother load, man. It was the holy grail of, of Poachers RS. It was crazy. So we had, we had a real good time working that guy and all his associates and bringing a lot of their bad guys to, to justice on that one. So that going, you know, everybody thinks game ward DNR officer. You're checking fishing license, making sure everybody has their correct hunting tag and stuff like that. But how did you end up coming in contact or hearing about the illegal grow sites that were going on? Yeah, the meth thing really started. I, I had seen a cartel grow site or two way early on in my career down in Riverside County with four service um, law enforcement officers, friends I was making down there. But I was just along for the ride to learn. I had no involvement in doing operational planning. I had no idea of the environmental damages. And when I left Riverside County to come back to Silicon Valley around 1995, I had no clue that it was embedded all over California, all over the West Coast, and that these cartel groups were actually growing tainted cannabis in about 25 other states in the union, as well as producing methamphetamine, the fentanyl production, human trafficking, gun running. We had no idea this was an organized cartel crime embedded in America, not just doing that. But... The first one I found was in 2004, and the very first chapter of my first book, War in the Woods, goes into this, when my biologist buddy, lifelong friend, doing a fisheries study up on a pristine creek below Henry Co. Park, not too far from where I met that game warden that changed my life many years earlier, um, had one of his creeks dry up that made no sense in the middle of, like, April. And the creek was dry uh, out of two watersheds that he was studying, and the one that was dry, there wasn't a steelhead trout in it, which is federally protected. They're migratory fish. They're really rare. 
especially in the Silicon Valley, threatened and endangered federally, worth about $30,000 an animal, as, long, as well as red-legged frog and yellow-legged frog species he was studying that are also sensitive. And they were completely dead in one creek because it was bone dry, and it shouldn't have been. So we, we expected to find maybe a cattleman or a rancher way up in the high country diverting water for his cattle, maybe for some sort of um, urban development, a home. We didn't know. Uh, but the last thing I ever expected to run into was a cartel grower or growers growing, you know, tainted weed um, kind of in a, a remote area uh, where the study area was. But when I took him into the woods as my bird dog and we dove into the canyon, that's exactly what we found. Two AK armed, AK-47 armed growers in battle dress uniform that looked like they were they belonged in the South American jungle, you know, as a, as freedom fighters or something, as opposed to in some pristine creek channel in the Silicon Valley uh, in Coyote Creek. And we came very close that day to having a violent encounter, and thankfully we did not, or we would not have had any positive developments after that. But we both got out of there undetected after what we saw, and we brought in our narcotics task force about a month later, and, and we took the thing out, and then my life changed forever pretty much from that mission on. Did other wardens be coming into contact in these gross heights as well? Because it seems like you're the, it was this incident that really kicked it off on the state level. Or was it just because you were more vocal and you wanted to go after the environmental charges? Well, it was about this time that I was I was starting to find them. And my partners over in Fresno County, over in the Central Central Valley, were, were just starting to find them as well. Or they were starting to work other agencies that were finding them, like Forest Service as an example, BLM. The sheriffs out there, just like we were working with in Santa Clara County. But that was really when it was starting to blow up. And then when I found out how egregious these environmental crimes are, these EPA banned poisons, these growers hike into the grows that they have to import from Mexico because they're so deadly, they're not even allowed to be used in our country. Um, EPA banned them about 20 years ago and made them a felony to possess. Um, products like Carbofuran, Furidan, Metafos, you've heard me say those names before you've seen the pictures in my books of what these things look like for people's safety to be aware. Um, we didn't know any of that was going on back in 04. And then in 05, when we had that gunfight where my partner was shot through both legs by an AK-47, and he almost didn't survive that encounter, and we'd gotten our first of six gunfights with these growers that would transpire over about another 10-year period. Right then in 2005, we were just starting to find out that it wasn't just tainted weed and diverting water. It had EPA banned toxics on the marijuana, in the water, in the soil, fertilizers that leached into the waterways once winter came because none of these sites were being cleaned up after they were being eradicated and raided. So the environmental polluting damage was just staying there on these waterways and just washing right into waterways and, and killing wildlife for miles once the growth site was forgotten about. Um, and that was 05 when, when we had that first shooting and then 07, 08, 09, when we had other deadly force encounters, we never got hurt and our guys didn't get hurt, but we always came really close to, this was a day that could have turned sideways very badly. Um, and we need more support. We need the guys that are good for this job, doing it all the time. We need these amazing canines like canine Phoebe that we talk about a lot. Brian Boyd's amazing kind of phenom dog that she and he and Brian were developing these tactics up in Shasta County through trial and error for about a two, two and a half year period where they really got surgical and so precise and, and effective at it. Um, the officer safety value just went up fivefold. 
And once that happened, I knew we needed dogs. I knew we needed teammates that were dedicated to this so we didn't have to do routine patrol because we couldn't tackle it effectively, more logistical support, administrative support, air support. And fast forward to 2013, as Hidmore goes into, Chief Mike Carrion gave us the opportunity to build a pilot program, and we did. And in the first six weeks of that pilot program, out of a three-month test period over the summer of 2013, it was so successful in eradicating so much so much tainted weed and taking so many bad guys to jail, finding so many weapons, you know, taking so many miles of black poly pipe and, and grow waste materials out in the first month that the chiefs decided collectively that we're not going to test this anymore. Come January 1st of 2014, we want a full-time team in place. They wanted me and Nate Arnold to develop the testing criteria, pick the right guys, evaluate them objectively, and then get in, get deployed full-time and work straight for headquarters under a special operations umbrella and lead patrol, which everyone on the team at that point was more than willing to do and dedicated to do so. That led to our sniper team being developed um, right around the first spring of 2014 to adjunct what we needed to have to support our entry guys, to do long-range surveillance on these growth sites, or any other thing you might need to do for force multiplication or, um, you know, what we call allied agency, active shooter, you name it, a homeland security threat. Just put game wardens that are capable of doing tactical work in place to help and be a force multiplier because we're all low on personnel no matter what agency we come from. And that, then we were off to the races, Gordon, from that point forward. We never really looked back. And when I retired at the end of 20, 2018, I took a, a deep breath and went, wow, that was six years. <laughs> That was flipping madness. You know, it's like, I don't think we slept much. Uh, you know, vacations weren't really vacations. And the guys, my brother's on the team right now, and it's a lot of the same guys and a few new ones. And it's kind of really reassuring to, to know that no one's left the team after the exacting, the exhausting pace we run on that unit after six years. We've had a couple of retirement. We've had a retirement. We've got some promotions. And that's where we brought new people in. And it's really cool to see uh, the team still doing what they're doing. And, I, and I'm and i honored to be able to tell their story now that started off as our story, but it's their story now and what we're trying to do to really educate the good work they're doing out there. But it's uh, it's been an amazing journey, and, and the team is doing well, really well, going into year seven and year eight. And I just want to – you just gave a lot of information there, and I just want to unpack that um, to back it up a little bit to that the very first you – know, you mentioned you and your biologist buddy. You got out of there safely. I mean – what were the next steps that you were taking? I mean, did you call your superiors right away or did you call another department? I mean, what did the, what did that look like and what did the prep go into for the takedown? Yeah, we, we got, I, I had to talk to a lot of other agencies and I had to let my Lieutenant know what was going on and it was pretty unorthodox what we were involved in, but he completely understood and was supportive of it. We weren't going to be uh, in a leading role in that operation, but we were going to be supporting. We were going to go in on the raid. We were going to guide them into the canyon where the grow was. And we did all that. And we had probably 40, 40 officers that day um, from multiple different agencies. And what I learned that day was we did a lot of good work together, but there were certain things that from a wildlife officer standpoint, I considered did not get addressed and that was none of the environmental crimes were rectified or even addressed or acknowledged or, or quite frankly cared about um we could have caught those guys very easily had we put a little bit of apprehension tactics in which we didn't but not monday morning quarterbacking anybody that ran it at the time that's just the way another teams did business for safety reasons completely understandable uh, I knew that if we were going to continue in this and like what brian boyd and phoebe and all the rest of the guys on the team were starting to do in other parts of the state 
was really aggressive apprehension operations in addition to eradication dealing with that tainted dope so it doesn't reach the street heaven forbid you have like the legitimate cannabis industry people trying to put out good product or what is organic sanctioned product in states where it's legal getting mixed in with this tainted weed that you know can kill you slowly because of a nerve agent or not so slowly if it's if it's an active a, a recent dose with all that going on um i just thought we could do it different and even though we were that was 2004 and we were basically almost a decade from having a tactical unit dedicated in our own agency running it our way we were doing the building blocks every season we were pushing more reclamation and cleanup santa clara county sheriff's uh, marijuana eradication team members the old and the new generation all those guys that'll listen to this know who i'm talking about they were wonderful they brought us in as equals they would reclamate as much as they'd go arrest and they were very very active in putting an aggressive arrest effort to try to put some deterrence into these guys and take them out of circulation it, it, it had to happen um, that's the template we went forward with in 2013 as my book hidden war goes into and that's what's been real successful in certain parts of the state with other agencies that do the same thing um, you know aggressive apprehension approach to try to take them out of circulation so they physically can't do any more damage get rid of the product break the back of them financially keep uh, human consumers in the cannabis world safe from ingesting poisons and then reclamating and reclaiming the growth site and restoring it ugly dirty hard work not the most glamorous part of the job that third and final part but very important and um and we're getting that now it's it's working out really good in the beginning did you get a lot of pushback from either guys on the ground or even from the state level about the reclamation because obviously you guys are getting paid budgets are always tight i mean how that how yeah that we, conversation we, uh, we we have, we absolutely did get pushback and uh it was, it was kind of um many agencies thought well we're not garbage collectors now we didn't come out here to clean trash we're swat units we came out here to bust bad guys and we came out here to chop dope that's what we're getting funded for we're not going to be doing anything but that you know so there was a little pushback and our agency just kept making a bigger and bigger dent environmentally we kept met, uh, statistically numbers don't lie people can criticize why you're doing a certain particular act or specializing in a particular part of wildlife law enforcement like met but when you put up these you know what i call like on the nfl channel they call it mind-blowing stats we had some mind-blowing stats especially when we started documenting our, our marijuana enforcement team's efforts in 2013 through the pilot program it changed the game and nobody can argue with with that effectiveness so if other teams didn't want to do the reclamation component, we said that's fine, but we prefer to work and we'll always put teams that do do the reclamation effort that aren't within our agency. When we're doing allied agency operations, we'll put them at the top of the list to assist, certainly. So we're like-minded and we're making an environmental dent as well as an apprehension eradication dent. And that raid you mentioned, the, the, the and you talk about it in the book, called out too early, you could say, and the guys ran off. Yeah, but it was what a year later after that is when your partner was shot. Was that because exactly. was that because growers out there now knew that they're kind of coming under fire and that you guys are looking for them and they're more prepared, or was it just the, the I guess a shock and awe, if you will? Yeah, for that particular day, it was one of the things where we just walked into a really aggressive group. It was harvest time. Um, you hear about groups, cartel groups like the Los Zetas that are special forces trained and, you know, they're up here to do security business through the growth season. We, we encountered something like that. 
And we've seen that several other times in grow sites, especially in those August, middle to late August months when harvest time's running rampant. And there's a lot of, lot of bad guys in the grow, not just the two growers putting it together. There's trimmers, there's processors, and there's a lot of guns running around because nobody wants their product messed with, whether it's law enforcement, another rival group, or even internal theft. So that was a, that was a clue to us that not every grow is necessarily going to be this violent, but some and a good percentage of them are. So we're going to prepare accordingly like we're going into, uh, you know, basically cartel gunmen there to defend all the time. And we're going to prepare for the worst and we're going to hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. And, and that really changed the tone. Not a particular pattern, but just it elevated the level because no officer in the, in the country had been shot by one of these growers before. And it happened to be a game warden on his first marijuana eradication operation. So that really shocked a lot of people politically, um, emotionally, within our family, a thin green line game wardens within agency and with all the other allied agencies that said, what are game wardens doing on a drug case? This is crazy. So a prompted debate and a prompted exposure to the real issue, the environmental issue, which was much needed, but a very bad way to get to it with one of our officers near fatally getting shot. And you talk about in the book, it took what, three hours for helicopter rescue to get in there because. Yeah, it was, it was a ridiculous three hour helicopter rescue and which it it should have been a 30 minute rescue. Um, At the time we did not have the air assets or know who to work with for air support, like the military, the 129th rescue wing out of Moffett field the Coast Guard, California Highway Patrol's chopper. Anybody but those three won't fly into a hot zone until an area is completely clear of any danger. Well, that was a mountainside during harvest time of 32,000 plants, and there must there was probably no exaggeration, 20-plus growers and or armed operatives on the cartel side all over that mountain. And there's no way six guys getting into one small portion of that garden out of like five different subplots was going to clear that whole hillside. But someone got hurt. And you got to get help to that officer, no matter where you are. And thankfully, we had a pilot that, after a lot of political debate back and forth with orders, um, went ahead and brought that bird in and, and got us out of there and got got Kyle out of there, especially, which was so critical. And you said that kind of woke up everybody else. Did you notice the the red tape kind of shorten up a little bit? <laughs> yeah, the red the red tape absolutely after. did. Um, after that, um, the red tape from the standpoint of SOPs, standard operating procedures, were really, really roped in um, to be a little more effective. We also started to see more air support. We developed our own internal squad training programs to get better prepared for what we encountered. We were never going to be that light again, and we were never going to be um, undergunned, understaffed, and we were always going to have the support systems we needed from the standpoint of trauma medicine equipment to not quite canines yet. It was still pretty new for that, but now we were going to be going into having our administration fully aware of where we were, what we were dealing with, and be able to bring the cavalry on a minute's notice. And we had a lot of support from my administration especially, which I was very thankful for. And did you? when did you start bringing the canines, and whose idea was that first? Did that come from you guys on the ground, or was that from upstairs? It came straight from us on the ground, and, and really the, the big, big pat on the back to Brian Boyd with his canine Phoebe because – even though she was developed as a dual purpose apprehension dog that can apprehend, that can bite apprehend when she needs to, she can, you know, uh, detect with her nose certain scents that she needs to find weapons, poached animals, gunpowder, gun oil, things like that. Um, we needed a dog that can now go do the marijuana enforcement job that other agencies that normally do that job outside of game warden circles don't do. 
And he perfected that tactic with Shasta County Sheriff's Department ad hoc by trial and error of kind of going in, you know, to bully go where no, you know, canine handlers gone before us to coin a phrase. He did that. And it was by his good work. Other agencies started to see that and said, you know what, we need to get some dogs and we need to have the template that Brian and Phoebe have created with California Department of Fish and Wildlife to bring something into the light to make this job safer, more effective. And then we started to see the U.S. Forest Service getting dogs, Bureau of Land Management getting dogs, um, <laughs> sheriff's departments all over the state and then other parts of the country for this particular type of work. And things got really effective. They got really effective. But that was a slow process. That that started really hot and heavy and, and give or take a couple of months or maybe a year or two here in about 2000, 2009, 2010 for Brian and Phoebe. And we didn't start to see the dog until he we had the blessing of him coming and working with us in Santa Clara County right up until about 2011, 2012. And one of the first chapters in Hidden where I go into that Croy Road mission where Phoebe effectively neutralized two bad guys that were in harvest time, heavily armed with handguns, and came very close to shooting me and pulling a gun on me as the dog was deployed on this, this bad guy. And her bite duress kept him from pulling a Russian automatic pistol on me and all the gunmen behind me. And I would have surely been in a gunfight or in a gun battle within, I mean, contact distance. I was a couple feet from this guy when he was pulling. She saved my life that day. She saved everyone on that team's life that day. And then the light bulb went off. And during that mission, literally, as I described in the book, I was making phone calls to all of my administrators, Assistant Chief Carrion, Chief of Patrol Nancy Foley at the time, and said, guys, we came this close, this close to losing an officer today, but it went absolutely smooth. And we took two real hard cartel gunmen out, 11,000 plants, bunch of poisons on a little trout tributary, all because of this dog. And we need to be having this dog on every mission. Well, one Phoebe can only go so far, you know, and when we're doing missions all over the state in little fiefdoms in different districts, and we don't have a formalized team, that was also the catalyst to let, to really tell me and for me to articulate to my administration, Hey, Today was what we need to have at every mission. And this group of guys that know how to do it right and safely, if they want to do it with this dog and maybe more dogs, God willing, in the future, we need to roam around and do it and not ad hoc it district by district. And then things changed. We got the green light to try the pilot program the very next season because of that one mission. And that's why I included that mission in Hidden War because it was so historically critical and so historically relevant for us to make that progressive step. Was it at Cray Road or another mission where Phoebe got off her leash and this was standing? That was her. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was Cray Road mission. This yep. Standing, yep. you know, she, so Casey, dog got off her leash after the, everybody's arrested, but came over to the guy she bit earlier and is just putting her nose right up to his face and staring him down. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, guys, to kind of say like, yeah, I know you're not a threat anymore. I know you're handcuffed. I see that bandage on your leg that I bit really hard a little earlier but you were pulling a gun on my peeps and no one's going to get hurt on my watch. So I own you don't mess with my guys. And, uh, that dog had so much old soul, you know, just personality and wisdom and intuitiveness, but she had a little mischief in her too. And that's what made her such a good dog. And, um, uh, she was just amazing, man. And it was, it was just, just a, just a heartbreaker when we lost her last year to leukemia. And at 13 years old, that dog had an amazing life for everything she experienced. 116 cartel bites, um, another 900 bad guys she arrested that she didn't have to bite, all in situations like that. Plus, she, you know, saved lost hikers, saved children, found murder weapons. I mean, she kind of had like that rock star dog's life, and she was the most friendly, social love bug, like my yellow lab, Apollo or Jordan, 
same type of dog, never been an officer, but she was all business when it was time to go to work in the field. We called her the fur missile, as Brian <laughs> likes to say, kind of like a JDAM that's got missile lock, laser sightedness, flip the switch, fire and forget. She's going to get her target. Just stay, stay with the missile. It was, it was, it was amazing, amazing seeing her at work. And I can't, thank her enough for all the all the life she saved mine included multiple times over again i understand you know that was her numbers are pretty legendary you know a thousand arrests i mean what's an average canine over a career how many arrests do they typically come in with you know it's hard to put it to averages because it's not a testament to the handler skill or the canine skill it's really it's really dictated by where they're working and what type of assignment they have if they're in an urban center that doesn't have a high crime you know, rate, or they've got a lot of officers responding or multiple canines. You, you, I have and work with some of the most amazing canine handlers and dogs that might only have five bites in their career. And you think, well, that was a lazy dog and that dog didn't do anything effective. Not, not the case at all. The problem, the point was that was a great dog team. They only had opportunities where they had to deploy bite force. Thankfully so, because you don't want to bite any more than you have to, just like we don't want to get in gunfights any more than we have to. We prefer everybody goes home safe if we can make that happen. And the same thing with deploying bites for, for apprehensions. Um, and then you have a dog like Phoebe that happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right handler doing the type of job that almost every cartel grower wants to resist arrest. They have a weapon they want to pull. They don't want to give up. So she was in, quote unquote, a target rich environment. She was in an environment where nine times out of 10, when she sees a bad guy, He's going to execute some level of borderline deadly force or beyond that she's going to have to deploy to save our lives and the lives of the rest of us on the team. Um, so it, it's hard to put averages to it, but generally speaking, and again, not being a dual purpose handler ever, but being part of one and working with dogs and being a supervisor of a team, leaving it to the experts like Brian Boyd, like my friend Mike Ritland, you know, that you heard on Mike Drop uh, when we talk dogs. Um, those guys know dogs to a level that I can't even start to comprehend, but being around all those dogs in all fairness, you know, if, if you've got a dog that has a five to seven year canine service life and they make any number of arrests, whether it be 10, whether it be 50, uh, maybe they make, you know, a quarter of those are actual bite apprehensions. And most of those are just bay and give ups. That's a great career. As long as the dog is safe, the officers are safe, and nobody gets hurt. But really, really hard to put numbers on it because every situation is different. And you mentioned with Phoebe, she died of leukemia last year, and two other dogs also died of cancer, if I remember right. Yeah, we did. We had we had we had one of our dogs, um, a new canine, uh, a new canine Zoe that our second handler Nick um, had, and she was on her way to being another Phoebe. Her first season, she had like thirty-five apprehensions which in one season is just pretty mind blowing. Um, but she was working side by side with Phoebe, working with a good handler as a mentor with Brian and things were just really, really working well. So because of that right there, because of that, um, she was on her way to being another phenom. And then all of a sudden a year and a half into her life, she gets this leukemia and she's dead within a month. And she was completely healthy given a clean bill of health when she got to us from the training program. And we suspect there was certainly an element of poisons in the ground. She could have ingested through her paws because we know this carbofuran is on the soil. It gets ingested through pores. Um, we can't prove that. We can't say that for sure because it dissipates in the body so quickly um, when, when an animal or a person is exposed. 
but we certainly suspect that and we're very careful and change our protocol on how we deal with our dogs in grow sites. Are there any agencies or NGOs that are researching long-term effects of carbofuran to humans or animals, you know, that are in this kind of environment at all? There, there absolutely are. Um, Greta Weigart and Dr. Murad Gabriel with IERC that I talk about a lot in the book and um, actually um, bring in some of their chapters from some stuff we've co-authored on another book called Where There's Smoke. They're looking at the scientific effects on wildlife as with exposure levels, whether it be fisheries in the water, mammals, soil. Um, they're doing some great work with it. And if it wasn't for what IERC is doing with Forest Service, with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, we would be way behind the curveball on the science aspect of basically giving us the hard science, the quantified data to tell us what we already know is happening because we're experiencing it. But they are, they're doing a great job with that. And on top of the dogs, you you put together the first sniper team for this program and you did a lot of equipment changes in there. I mean, you guys had to change your equipment, you change your tactics, and admittedly in the book, you, I know enough about firearms to understand that I know nothing about firearms. So it kind of, I started to get the little glazed eyes look there for a little bit, but I kind of understand what you're doing. But on the flip side of that, did you see growers changing habits or their tactics to remain undetected or try to evade when you come in? Yeah, we, we saw a lot of things, everything from noisemakers, escape trails, um, anti-personnel things like punji pits, where we were starting to see Vietnam era punji pits that started in about 2015 up in Shasta County and in, in Whiskeytown National Park. They were definitely trying to change the game to slow us down. Um, and besides all the, the tactics we built either on snipers or on canines, we were starting to see a lot of things like that, more, more aggressive, human-targeted anti-personnel traps like the punji pits, like the snares, um, bad guys on Overwatch with binoculars, sometimes long rifles of their own, watching on an Overwatch, kind of a counter-sniper situation we've seen. Fortunately, not in every gross site, but we see a lot of it. Uh, they definitely got the game, and then they started to target our dogs. They realized how effective these dogs were. They realized if they sucked them in close and took the bite, they could stab a 8- to 10-inch fixed blade right through the jugular vein. And if they could take out one canine, whether it's a federal canine, a state canine, or a county canine, they just probably ensured that their organization was successfully going to harvest another $100 million or more of profit because that's how devastating our dogs are to these operations. So then we had to start doing counter canine tactics to protect our dogs. Um, we lost a federal dog to a stabbing. We almost lost another great federal dog that worked with Phoebe all the time, but fortunately he made it out of surgery and is recovered and making and doing great work around the country right now. Um, but we've seen that shift and it's kind of an ebb and flow. You know, it's a cat and mouse game. And when the cat gets a little better, the mouse puts up their defense. They find better ways to counter the cat's attack and they evade us, you know, they're able to evade and escape for a while longer. And this is an evolving uh, science, if you will, that's very imprecise on cat and mouse and us getting better and, and then them stepping up their game. So it's never ending. Biggest thing we're trying to do though, Gordon, now is just keep our dogs safe in the process and adjusting those tactics because our dogs are operators. They're family, they're another officer, we view them that way and we don't need them out there taking senseless risks for the sake of an arrest. So we're, we do everything we can to protect them. Have you tried, I know they. I've seen photos at least of the dogs and it almost looks like a, a flak jacket, but understandably, you're out in the California heat, so I imagine you're also trying to worry about the dogs not overheating and such, especially if you're hiking at high elevations. Is there a lightweight version that also offers protection available at this point? 
there's some soft body armor, but nothing's gotten really, really cool for the dogs. Um, anything that we go into in the middle of summer for a cartel grow, it's, it's, we can't have them in a lot of armor. Um, not some of the current armor. There's some new prototype stuff we're looking at. Um, but we, we, we put what we can on them and it's a fine line between overheating and obviously, you know, um, being exposed to gunfire or from stabbings, but we, we have some protective stuff that I can't go into in detail that, that, that keeps them really pretty safe, even for the hot environments. But it, that's another evolving science we're working on all the time. And of course, to, to do these operations, you at first have to go and find the locations. I mean, aside from somebody calling you in with a potential lead and you find a Creek bed that's right up. I mean, how do you guys go about looking for them? Uh, it's everything from satellite imagery to going into canyons we know have historical waterways. And we know if it's got water, there's a 50% chance it's going to have a cartel grow in it because water is gold to these guys. Um, it's a lot of tips, hunters, anglers, outdoor enthusiasts that really, really know the game, um, that know where to look and have heard about it, watch the news, or kind of our thin green line informant system on just cartel marijuana. Um, our Caltip program just started blowing up with uh, anonymous tips on marijuana crimes about two years into the team. And I would get all those Caltips as the team supervisor. And it was amazing to me to see how many Caltips were now about illegal marijuana cultivation as opposed to poaching deer, taking too many fish, diverting somebody's stream or having a neighborly dispute over something like that. And now it's all about cultivation and nine times out of 10, it's a cartel cultivation operation. So a lot of tips and informants help us and we've gotten a lot better at finding it for all those reasons. And you talk about in the book doing flyover on one girl site and just trying to take as many pictures as you can. Have you ever had the conversation back before you're tired or has there ever been talk about using drones rather than a helicopter? I mean, they're not quiet, but they're certainly quieter than a helicopter blade. Yeah, we're, we're looking at drones, um, all of us on the federal, state, and even local level. Drones are great tools, and there are some quiet ones. But we, we have search and seizure issues with drones. Um, there's extensive protocol we have to go through before we can fly even public land with drones. So there are those elements of challenges. So they are effective, but they have to be used carefully, and they have to be used under certain SOPs, or we just can't fly them. But they are a great tool for sure. And what time of year are you guys going in? to take down these grow sites? I mean, when, what's your busy season for the Met? You know, it really starts ramping up. We've had hotter and hotter seasons start earlier. Our winters are ending, you know, sometimes as late as late February. So here we are That's trickling nice. into the start of March. We could conceivably see a grow site uh, next month. But on the average, you're looking from May to about the end of September is the hot and heavy time with June, July, and August being just off the charts with cultivation and or harvest activity. And how many operations do you run on average in a summer then? Uh, it's a lot over the, I'd say med is an average over the year. Um, and it's, it's stayed about the same since I retired, but we're looking at a hundred plus operations annually. And in the summer, we're looking at at least one every day. And we might actually be involved in two or three a day where the whole team isn't together, but we're with different agencies kind of, uh, you know, multitasking, if you will. <laughs> so it, it's a lot. We're doing, you know, probably 50 missions a month during the, during the real busy, busy, busy months. And that would be like July and August. And then it's going to taper down other parts of the year, but average out to well over hundred missions a year, if not more. 
And say if you miss a growth site, I mean, do these guys tend to come back because they're bringing infrastructure in there? You talk about the book, the black pipes, the kitchens and such like that. Do they just go back to that same site or do they pack everything up, move again just to avoid detection? No, no. Absolutely. If they've got a if they've got a cash cow and everything is set up, their water diversion, it hasn't been detected by law enforcement, no one's tampered with it, they're coming back. I mean, why work harder? Let's just work smarter. This has no signs of law enforcement or anybody detecting it. So we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna take we're gonna keep using it until we're we're pushed out. And that's where not only the law enforcement effort of finding that growth site comes into play, but doing the reclamation. Because if we just raid that site and we leave that infrastructure, that water diversion and all that encampment, trash and everything there, they're going to come back even if law enforcement's hit it. They might be back the very next season. They might be back that same season because they know how taxed we are, how undermanned we are, how many growth sites they have out there. And they know if they take a risk of trying to put another one up where law enforcement's raided it once before, they have a high likelihood of escaping um, if they are raided again. And they might not get caught. And that might be one of 10 in their particular cell's oversight that it makes it to harvest, which could be a multi-million dollar profit. So they'll definitely go back if they can. And of course your career started before and a lot of the work you've done with Met started before Proposition 64 passed, ending the state prohibition in California. How much right. did that affect your job positively or negatively? And of course, I know um, you then have also legal growers and I'm sure, you, I don't know if you worked with directly, but yeah, we, we talk about that, and the, the last chapter of, of Hidmore goes into um, two years of Prop 64, one of several states that's legalized recreationally and medically, and challenges moving forward. And we need to remember that when a state like California legalizes and regulates, we're not an anti-cannabis state, and certainly in the book and as a team, we're not putting out an anti-cannabis message. That's not what we're about. We're an anti-environmental crime, and we're an anti-threat to public safety team. So if people are growing cannabis legitimately and it's done organically and they're not stealing water, stealing power, uh, you know, employing cartel members or doing anything, you know, illegal in in the process of growing legitimate cannabis, more power to them. That's the laws we've enacted here in California. So let's move forward. But on the cartel front, the way we regulated with Prop 64, because we watered down trespass growing from a felony to a misdemeanor in gen as a general crime, and if you're a, a juvenile cartel grower, it's uh, watered down to an infraction, we basically gave the cartels incentive to go out in the forest and go rip up the go rip up the land for growing black market cannabis, knowing that all these law enforcement teams, like our agency, with our watershed enforcement teams, our marijuana permitting teams, they're going to be so tied up dealing with the new registered growers, checking them for compliance, there's going to be very little law enforcement pressure on the cartel growers that are doing the biggest environmental damage we've ever seen. And certainly with the gunplay, we've seen the most violent threat we have to our public safety. And that's exactly what happened after Prop 64. We saw all the grows continue either indoor or outdoor with the cartels still working them. And besides us and maybe Forest Service and a handful of sheriff's departments that stayed in the game, most people bowed out of it on the enforcement effort, and they got a lot of pushback, and a lot of cartel grows made it to harvest because we just couldn't get to them all. And did you see a change in the uh, uh, the how they didn't want the or people weren't focused on the environmental damage because it wasn't their job per se? Did that change after you started to bring forward those and a lot of the felony charges because of that? 
It did. It was it was the environmental component because once you pollute water, once you bring in an EPA banned toxic poison or you destroy a stream bed, you start getting felonies. And when you do the water code and other violations like that, it's the same type of deal. So once we convince the district attorneys throughout California to put these environmental crimes and go after them on these growth sites, then and only then would we start to see the felony charges, the effect of prosecutions. And we're getting that now. But we got to do it with a lot of extra steps because of the way we regulate under Prop 64. And, of course, I mean, you're all humans. You're working an incredibly stressful job. I mean, as as the MET program really started to come together and you're working more and more operations, how did you or your team kind of um, unpack the stress, if you will, at the end of the day or the end of the week? You know, it's it was a lot of really um, compartmentalized family time. It was going off the grid when we needed to go off the grid. I was certainly one of the guys that um, I overworked with every one of my team members. When we made this team in 2013, we literally went 24-7. We needed to be successful. We needed to expose the problem. We needed to go a direction that fish and wildlife officers were not known to go towards before. We knew we were going to take a lot of backlash. We knew it was going to be seen by the traditionalist as guys trying to play special operations soldier, go be SWAT guys, or go play Navy SEAL out there. It wasn't about any of that. It was about showing the depth of the problem. And it was kind of like, you know, like a kid in a candy store where all this candy could represent all this environmental crime. And now you're finally let through the locked door. And now you can do whatever you want in the candy store for the first time in history. We're not going to take that lightly. We're going to capitalize on that opportunity. So we went ballistic. And our dogs, our handlers, our operators, our team leaders, our supervisors, we were exhausted. But it was a great exhaustion. I feel like when most guys wind down at the end of their career, that last five years, my five-year plan was like, let's go train for an Ironman five times a week. <laughs> you know, I hadn't done an Ironman triathlon since 09, but I felt like I was training for one every day I went to work, you know, when, it, when we were back in the game. So speaking of that, a lot of physical fitness. Our retired Navy SEAL, veteran, now a captain of our marijuana program, or assistant chief actually, brought SEAL team physical training to the team when we were together training collectively. And all of us have our, our individual PT maintenance programs, whether it be running, swimming, calisthenics, strength exercises. Everybody's involved in something to keep the pace and work in the environments we did. Um, we gotta be in shape. And that is a great mental stress reducer it's a great outlet to decompress and get your mind off uh, that the darkness of what we would see in these cartel grows from suspects to environmental damage to poisons to dead wildlife. Um, that kind of thing, you know, shutting off and, and doing family events, going outside of law enforcement circles, getting in some pristine wild country, whether it be out of state for me in my new home in Montana or in our Sierras in California, recreationally, where we aren't pushing a gun looking for tainted weed that tended to uh, de-stress us in a lot of ways and we still do. And, and we have to do that for balance, you know, or you go just crazy doing this job. And of course you have families and were you married at the time when you started or no. by this point? I mean, or what did your immediate family or, or even the team's families have, or were they stressing out because you're going into these dangerous situations or did they, did you know, did the team um, kind of keep that all separate? Of, all of, all of the spouses on the team or family members or whatever support systems we had collectively really kind of understood the game. They had been in a game warden family for a lot of years because nobody was, you know, we have a couple young guys on the team, but everybody had several years of experience. So 
um, wives, girlfriends, kids, brothers, sisters, you know, immediate significant others all kind of knew what we did that we'd be gone a lot of nights anyway, because patrol game wardens doing traditional work, it's not a nine to five job. You are working really strange hours all the time. Um, but when Mets started, we kind of all braced our families because they knew there had been gunfights. Everybody knew what had happened in that gunfight where we had an injured officer in 2005. And our families now knew that we were going into this dedicated and every day was going to be that type of operation that could potentially turn deadly. Um, the flip side of it was our family also knew we weren't going into it alone. Like a solo game warden might have to take on uh, a, a truck spotlighting animals with felony warrants, suspects inside it. And he or she's going to take that on alone at least if we're going into a real dangerous cartel grow, I have a whole lot of really skilled gunmen and defensive tactics experts and, you know, quick thinkers that are physically fit and really good at in, in the face of battle, so to speak, for lack of a better word, at my back and I'm at their back. And knowing that, our, our family were pretty comfortable because they knew the caliber of, of men that we were all blessed to work around with each other. And I've listened to Ed Calderon, you know, who is an LEO on the other side of the border, and he's talked about... Yeah, good guy. The, good guy and a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah Ed has a lot of good things yeah, to say. And But just the the chaos that he's seen through his career when he was still down there and the death threats and, and bribery and such. I mean, did you guys ever have to worry about the cartel bosses putting out a bounty or death threats on you or the team? Because oh, absolutely. I imagine you're putting absolutely. a pretty big we, dent on their wallet. Yeah. Yeah, we always have to worry about that concern. Um, we take safety precautions. We haven't had anything violent happen, but we're always prepared as if it could. Obviously, being on the being on the front of the outreach spectrum of telling this message, even while I was still running the team, um, having some books out, doing the documentary TV, Wild Justice, Patriot Profiles, Rick Stewart's amazing productions that really show the team in action. Um, and we even used it for the book, the trailer for Hidden War to really give a visual to what this, this subject matter was about. Um, we always got to be ready. You know, um, we always are vigilant. We always have security systems in place and uh, we have redundancy for that problem. And we do it as safe as we can and, you know, stay in condition yellow all the time because you never know. And to kind of bring it back, we mentioned, you know, it's legal growers and people are following the law. I mean, what was your relationship with them or their organizations and departments? I was very, very relieved to see as I started to do outreach and education and talk to legitimate grower groups, you know, the 20% or so that do it by the numbers, that don't want to destroy the environment. They're not being greedy about how they grow their weed. They're not stealing water, stealing power, diverting creeks, you know, not paying their, their fees or whatever they need to do. There were a group of them that, were, that are absolutely amazing and environmentally conscious as we are. They love their wildlife. They kind of coined the term earth warriors for our team, which we never saw coming, but it was, it was a cool thing to take from the grower side because it was the first time a law enforcement team doing something in cannabis enforcement wasn't necessarily seen as, you know, the raider, the marauder, the bad, scary guys. We were there to, you know, deal with the cartels, the trespass grower threat that no legitimate grower wants to see. Nobody wants to see in America. And it was kind of a unifier where we had the legitimate growing industry and still do behind our efforts. And we have the non-users, the anti-cannabis folks, the conservative side of the fence, the left and the right, equally passionate about this issue and on the same side to, to get rid of it. And when we talk about trespass growing, the legitimate growing community has been very favorable and very helpful in a lot of ways in our efforts. And I'm grateful to them for that. And 
you know, you've done outreach with them and you've mentioned outreach in the past. Is that what spurred you to write War in the Woods or was that yeah, just made I another was, hobby War to put Woods, on the plate? <laughs> I never intended to. Honestly, Gordon, it's funny. People ask me this a lot because they're like, wow, you know, this the first book came out 10 years ago. Then you retired and Hidden War came out. War in the Woods was never a plan. I never planned to write a book at all in my career. And if I ever did, it was probably going to be something in retirement and traditional memoirs and, and, and old stories of, of experiences. Um, but after the first shooting, when in 2005, with a, uh, an awesome dedicated officer that was near fatally shot to death, um, and all the different missions that were very violent around that in Santa Clara County here, well before Met was formed, I was solicited by many people to write that book. And Dr. Jim Swan, my co-author on that book, who wrote the forward and afterward and written 10 books previously, very successfully, um, suggested the idea. And I liked the idea because it told a, a component of environmental crime that no one had discussed in the quote unquote drug world of illegal trespass cannabis growed by the cartels. And on top of that, it was from a game warden's perspective when nobody would really equate a game warden doing narcotics work on cannabis illegal grows. It just didn't add up. And no one had discussed that in writing on any level from any agency. So uh, the message needed to get out. We got a, a very good, legitimate book deal from a great publisher on it. Chief Nancy Foley was really supportive of it when I when I told her about it, about the opportunity. Um, it was a way for us to get our message out that was departmentally sanctioned and, and looked over, of course, before it was published to tell the story the right way and really honor game wardens of all the challenging professional tactical jobs we need to do and why we need to be legitimately considered tier one law enforcement officers like all other good brothers and sisters in blue and green are. Did you see a lot of an increase in public awareness after that first book came out? Big time. Yeah, War in the Woods did a lot, and War in the Woods came out the same time Wild Justice launched. So the two kind of fueled each other's fire. There was no plan for that. It was just very convenient, blessed timing. So Wild Justice supported the book. The book supported the Wild Justice story that Nat Geo was filming in real time, for worldwide distribution and now all of a sudden we had everybody wanting to be game wardens we had you know tier one special operations military personnel coming back from fighting the GWAT, the global war on terror in the sandbox of afghanistan and iraq and now those guys were coming back and going man i'm a i'm a hunter i love wildlife i'm a conservationist and i had no idea fishing game wardens were doing this tactical stuff i want to get on that met team so we were getting great candidates that never would have considered game wardens as a second career choice out of the military, as one example. So, yeah, the book and the TV show did a lot for us on that realm. And certainly retiring now, as much as I miss doing operations, I miss pushing a gun, and I miss the guys every day. Um, I'm still in physical condition where I could do missions, but <laughs> I was maxed out on my career. I was at the 30-year mark. Um, and also with these outreach opportunities coming up, the bottom line is the pin is mightier than the sword in so many cases. And the national awareness to this issue because of Hidden War and because of the TV we're doing around it now, it's complementing what my agency, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and all the law enforcement division officers are doing, not only on MET and special operations, but on patrol, on wildlife trafficking, on marine patrol, on everything they do. It's given the thin green line attention they need. It's getting them pay increases they deserve so they can afford to keep their families fed and thriving in those urban expensive areas I come from originally, like the Silicon Valley. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have the outreach component and continue to push it. And I will keep pushing it because we named the second book Hid More for a reason. Even after 10 years of all this, Gordon, like you just mentioned, the, the increase when the first book came out and what happened with Wild Justice, 10 years later, 
I'm on the East Coast doing book signings with Colonel Oliver Norse Blessing and support at the NRA Annual last April in Indianapolis. And I got people gobbling up Hidden War from all over the country and going, wow, Lieutenant, I had no idea the cartels were embedded in America and doing this stuff. And I said, sir or ma'am, that's why we named the book Hidden War. It is literally a hidden war that not enough people know about, and it doesn't stay in the mainstream enough with all the other issues we got to deal with around the world and within our own country. Um, so it's good to have the opportunity, and I thank you for taking the time tonight to talk with me about it and air out these issues, discuss what's going on, what game wardens are doing out there as part of the thin green line as it relates especially to special operations and the, and the great Met career times we got to have. So as you said, you know, it just doesn't seem like it's just a California problem. It's more of a, a national problem, correct? Big time. It absolutely is. And as you'll see in my new book, Hidden War, you'll see uh, maps toward the end in the appendices section with a with kind of a, a, a transcribed grid map of what states have the problem to a much lesser extent than California, of course, because we are the weed state, being one of only six true Mediterranean climates on the globe here in California. But it's in 25 other states, 25 to 27. I have to check my math and look at the map again. But over half of the lower 48 have cartel-tainted, you know, EPA-banned, toxically-tainted marijuana cultivation happening on them. But what we need to remember that I go into in the book is this is not only a cannabis thing. This is a methamphetamine problem from the cartels. It's a synthetic heroin fentanyl problem. It's human trafficking. It's gun running. And the same groups that are growing weed in the summer in California or other western states and to a lesser extent throughout the Midwest and the East are cooking methamphetamine in the winter in all 50 states. They're trafficking in humans, abductions illegally in all 50 states. And they're running guns. So when you look at that, that's a huge national problem that doesn't just stay on the West Coast. It's not a California story. It's a California example of what's going on in the whole country. And that's why we wrote the book the way we did to put this out to the nation. And now can have, have other states then reach out to you? You mentioned 25, 27. Have re, they reached out to you or your department to try to put together their own MET teams per se? That's a really good question. And some have, um, some don't have the bandwidth to necessarily do it because they don't have the numbers. Um, from California, we have, uh, quite a few game wardens. We're still understaffed, but compared to the other states that don't have the infrastructure we do, we're, we're, we're much better off in personnel to have 12 guys go and dedicate to a team that are picked and lead patrol. That can happen. Um, other states don't necessarily have the bandwidth, but they need the education, the awareness and what they need to do to build it. And something I've been very lucky to be asked to do is share the experiences that I write about in the book and my career experiences and the training and development trials and errors and all the, you know, the pitfalls we went through to make this team and save other agencies the growing pains of what we went through. So a lot of, I can't say states at this point, but let's just say the Southwest, the Midwest, and even some Eastern states right now I'm working hand in hand with to educate to kind of guide, to kind of lend whatever knowledge I have based on what we developed in California. And I'm honored to do it, and I'm going to continue to do it to anybody that asks. So we're sharing the information. So, you know, information is key. And my main goal in retirement is to inform, it's to protect, and it's to unify, um, just like I've said on some of the other shows. And information is the key. Again, information is power. And these other state agencies dealing with this problem that don't know what these banned poisons are, how to deal with them, how to be safe around them, how to deal with booby traps. 
realizing what the patron saint worship aspect of some of these, the dark side of the, the, the cartel violent culture of chaos means and how to look for those target indicators or warning signs, even on patrol on a daily basis before they even get to a gross site in the woods is critical. And I'll do everything I can to help anyone that needs it. And really being at the spearhead of Met and all the work you've done, do you think ending the federal prohibition will stop the incentives for the cartels to be running grow sites over here? You know, I've said this before. It depends how we regulate. If we regulate federally efficiently um, and make it at a, at a level where there's not not too much red tape, the fees aren't so exorbitant that a legal, uh, you know, a black market traditional grower just can't afford 40000 to $80,000 in permits and fees and waivers to become a licensed grower. And if it was universal, like the wine industry, like cigarettes, tobacco, uh, you know, any other commodity alcohol, um, you would, I don't know that you'd eliminate it entirely, but you would definitely significantly reduce cartel trespass growth production of tainted marijuana because you'd kill most of the market. You truly would. If you had a product that was high high quality, organic, moderate to low cost, and no one had to go after this really potent and effective black market, but disgustingly, toxically tainted weed that the cartel provides so much for, you know, as much as 70, 80% of our black market all over the country, you'd see a dent on some level. I can't, I can't imagine it not being a, a significant change. And so now you've been retired for some time. What's next on your plate? I Have you thought about doing another book? I know you have a chapter uh, coming up here, and I remember you talking to Andy about a, a – is it a documentary or is it just a film called Alters, Altered State? Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff going on right now on the, uh, on the visual medium, let's say that. There's a documentary. Um, there's a show, a pilot we just filmed called The Thin Green Line. Uh, that's a conservation ethics of long range hunting. We were down in Southwest Texas and we got into the hub, basically the ground zero of cartel infiltration, whether it be tunnels overground or the panga boats I talked about on some of these shows. Um, we're doing stuff with that. And I, there are things developing with the book that I can't go into detail right now that you might see on a bigger scale, more visually. We'll just hint it at that realm right now with hidden war and other things that are coming in related to that. So um, while I thought there would be a little bit of pause and a breath in retirement, <laughs> the first year, the first year it has showed me that that is not the case, Gordon, at all. What's basically happened is, um, the outreach component has just gone fivefold. It's just gone exponential. And again, blessed and honored to do it because I get to tell a story I'm really passionate about. I get to honor the amazing guys that are working the team now and all those great game wardens in California and thin green line game wardens all over the country and the great work they're doing. And I get to help tell their story and be part of that brotherhood. So, um, there's no slowing down inside buddy, to be honest. And, uh, you're, you're going to see a lot of cool things developing. And to your, to your point about a third book, something like that will probably develop, but it is way too early to think about doing that because I'm barely getting my feet on the ground from educating and, uh, doing what I'm doing right now on the outreach front with the first book. Um, the first year's literally gone by that. And since it's had a national impact, I've been all over the country, and um, there's more coming with that. So uh, you could see a third one down the road, though. Sure. And probably the most important question of the night, if J.J. Abrams or another big-name director were to approach you with a movie deal, and as part of the contract you pick the actors, I mean, who would you – top Ooh. three top three pick for to portray you and your team? Oh man, you know, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great, there's so many great, great actors, but I think about guys, 
when I think about actors to to play the lead in this story, whether it be Hidden War or the whole story in Met, I think of guys that are already conservationists that are actors, guys like Scott Eastwood, Bo Hunter, you know, following his dad's footsteps, Clint, as a patriot, as a pro 2A guy for all the right reasons, but gets it as a bow hunter, hunts elk and other big game, gets into conservation, has a spirit of the wild, um, would be one amazing choice. A guy like Chris Pratt, another conservationist, really believes in farm to table or field to table. And there's so many, you know, new upcoming younger guys, too, that I just don't know their background enough to know what they have. But when if they've shared a background like mine or any of my thin green line brothers and sisters, um, they would get it passionately and they'd tell the right story. So I, I think of those two guys right off the cuff. I think of guys like Jeremy Renner, the great job he did in Wind River. Taylor Sheridan's amazing movie that really he wasn't exactly a game warden. He was more of a federal wildlife, you know, public safety animal guy. But he was portrayed as a game warden and how well he was portrayed as a character, as tactical proficiency, as being a woodsman and a tracker. Um, he just knocked it out of the park. So uh, Jeremy Renner could do something just like that and do a great job. And I know I'm missing a lot of good talent out there, so I hope I didn't offend anybody if you guys are listening to this podcast down the road. But there's 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 three top choices, and there's many more that I'm sure I'm leaving out. But, yeah, those guys are all – they all seem to get it. So you had about three and a half hours of windshield time, Daz, thinking, like, do you go A-team route with it, or do you go fast and furious and just go completely over the top? <laughs> I, th- I think something, I think more something on uh, Sicario tone, you know, something Wind River-like, something along that depth. You you make the environment a character. You really drive the story about environmental crime and how wildlife suffer and that there's a darkness that goes beyond just shoot them up action scenes. I mean, we have a lot of that. and There's a lot of good stuff on the side of Hollywood, but this needs to really be an environmental and American patriotism story. It needs to be done correctly. So I, for what, for what, what limited value my opinion matters on this thing is I'd like to see it more true to life like we've experienced. But, uh, but we're seeing some good signs of that, especially with uh, that whole series of movies like Sicario and like wind river and, you know, Yellowstone that Taylor Sheridan's doing now. It's impressive stuff. And one last question for you, John, uh, for anyone listening that are interested in working as game warden or other departments in their States of and here in Wisconsin, we have the DNR or department of game and wildlife. Uh, what advice would you give them? And, I have a question here from kangaroo underscore airsoft. How should I prepare for a career as a game warden? Man, great questions. Um, I want to let everybody know. I may not get back to you right away, but something I've been doing is taking direct messages on Instagram. So make sure you follow me on Instagram. It's just John Norris, all one word, at John Norris, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S. And um, get the right Instagram handle. You'll see the one that's me, and you'll see some fakes out there that are trying to be me, but that whatever. Um, Direct message me on direct questions, but the general question I get 20 times a week this whole last year is, what are my first steps? The first step you want to do, guys, is inquire with the agency you're interested in being in, whether it's Wisconsin, Minnesota, out here in California, Texas, wherever it may be. Call the agency. Look online. See what the warden requirements are. Look what the hiring parameters are. But talk to somebody that's actually in a wildlife law enforcement position. We're so digital now, we're all Instagram, we're all social media, we're all online. We tend to wanna to shy away from actually talking to a real person when we first do our research, but make it personal quickly because this job is about relationships like we talked about, Gordon, so succinctly early in your show. It's about relationships, so talk to a training officer, talk to a recruiting officer, talk to an office patrol warden about what does it take to get the job, what's the job like, what are my education requirements, Um, And the second thing you want to do that a lot of people don't think of doing is 
ask to do a ride along with your local game warden or a game warden in your area. Because when you get with a game warden and you're riding along with them, you're going to see what the job's really like. You're going to see the glamorous fun stuff. You're going to see the not so glamorous mundane, you know, routine things. You're going to see the paperwork aspect. You're going to see the crazy wildlife nuisance calls that just drive us all crazy sometimes, but you're going to see the gamut and you're going to have a better fit by doing that to find out if it's really a true fit for you and being able to ride two, three, four, six, eight, ten hours with a game worn on a ride along is more than all the studying of the fishing game code, studying for any exam that you're all going to have to do anyway, get to know the people, make sure it's a fit for you and don't look back and have no regrets and just go, go enjoy the process. And of course, where can people find war in the woods or hidden war and war in the woods for that matter? Yeah, Hidden War and War in the Woods are both on Amazon. You can find them both on paperback. Um, well, we're, we're going to have a paperback version this summer for Hidden War for the second edition. Right now it's only in hardback. They're both on Kindle. And the cool thing about Hidden War, this hasn't happened with War in the Woods yet, unfortunately, is I read for the audiobook and got to narrate with a really good producer, Trammell Starks, out in Atlanta over the summer for the Hidden War Audible book. And he did a bang-up job. He had an original score of music, sound effects, um, all the appendices sections, some additional stuff you don't get from the print copy. So the Audible version, for those of us that don't have time to read the book, which we're, we're listening to podcasts like yours, Gordon, as we're driving, and we're listening to books because we don't have the time in this modern techno society, right, <laughs> to pick up a hardcover and even look at the cool pictures in Hidden War, which you're going to want to take a look at, and the graphics, because my publisher did a great job on all that. But um, the Audible book's up on that, too. So that's all available through Amazon. Um, if people want signed copies, personalized, hit me up on direct messenger on my Instagram. We work out Venmo and we work out shipping and I will send one or both books to you with a little thin green line trinket, um, and personalize it because I may not be coming to your particular town for quite some time. And some people do want signed copies and I'm honored to do that if needed. Well, thank you again, John, for taking time uh, to be on the show. And folks listening, we barely even scratched the surface on this. I highly recommend picking up the books, listening to the audio version of Hidden War. Check out the other shows that I mentioned that John's been on. And it, I like it because you kind of get a different side of the story each show that I've listened to you on. And for and thank you again to all the listeners. Uh, you can find this episode and all others on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, CastBox, and iHeartRadio. You can also watch live recordings and join our conversations by going to twitch.tv slash rules of the arena. And this show is supported by listeners like you. If you could do me a huge favor and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcast, really helps me myself and the show out. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas I want to hear from you, please email me directly, roapodcastinfo at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Vero, all under at Rules of the Arena. If you'd like to support the show directly, please go to patreon.com slash rules of the arena, and I have a little tip jar set up there. All I ask is for a buck a show. Thank you, and we'll catch you next time.